Donald Trump's success on the campaign trail in 2016 has surprised, even shocked most observers, and many are saying they don't expect it to continue into the fall. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll talk about whether Trump's comments about Mexican people and Arizona's senior Senator John McCain will turn Arizonans away from him and even put the state in play in November. Or will pundits continue to be stunned by how voters respond to Trump? Plus, details are emerging in an Arizona public service rate case. KJZZ reporter Will Stone will let us in on what APS is asking for. Also, the month of May seemed relatively mild in the valley, with a significant number of days well below normal in the 80s and lower 90s. Later this week, we'll see a dramatic shift as an excessive heat warning goes into effect with near 115 degree highs. We'll talk with weather expert Randy Cervini. Here and now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, we'll talk about whether Donald Trump's comments about Mexican people and Arizona's senior Senator John McCain, among other things, will turn Arizonans away from him and even put the state in play in November. Also, the month of May seemed relatively mild in the Valley, with a significant number of days well below normal in the 80s and low 90s. We'll discuss the dramatic shift coming in the next couple of days as an excessive heat warning goes into effect with near 115-degree highs. I'll talk with weather expert Randy Cervini. And the former leader of the Arizona Science Center has written a new novel. We'll talk about her book and science education. We start today's program by looking at Arizona Public Service and its latest rate case, Arizona's biggest utility and its customers could see some big changes next year. This morning, Arizona Public Service asked the state's Public Utilities Commission for the first full review of its rates in five years. Under the company's proposal, residential customers will see their rates go up and a new kind of charge added to their bill. The much-anticipated rate case also promises to be just the latest battleground over the future of the residential solar industry in Arizona. For more KJZZ's, Will Stone joins us to break all of this down. And Will, first of all, how much more would customers pay under these new rates? Residential customers will see their bills go up by about 8% under under the proposed changes. So for the t- average typical homeowner who has a monthly bill of, say, $140, that translates to about an $11 increase. Uh, for businesses, it's a little less. It's about 6%. And if you spread the rate increases out across all the customers, it comes out to about 5.7%. Uh, the utility says this rate increase will help them fund more than $3 billion in upgrades to the grid and power plants and other kinds of uh, technological upgrades. And the utility is also changing how it bills residential customers as well. So give us an idea of what that would look like. Yes, this is one of the major kind of significant changes that we'll see in this rate case, potentially. Uh, The utility is adding a new third charge. It's called a demand charge. And it's tied to that one hour of the month when a customer uses the most power during on-peak hours, which is going to be between uh, 3 to 8 p.m. It's when there's the most demand for power, especially during the summer months from the utility. And that's when the utility uh, really has to have things up and running and be at full capacity. And that's different than what's currently available to most customers uh, on their bills. Their bill has two components. You can either, in, in ways of saving money, you can either reduce your total usage, so how much energy you're taking all the time, or you can shift that usage from on-peak to off-peak hours. Uh, Stephanie Layden with APS says this new demand charge gives customers more control and a third option to save money. They can still reduce total usage and shift from on-peak to off-peak, 
They can also reduce their bill by staggering the use of their major appliances. It's important to note that with the demand component, it's not in addition to what's already being paid. The bill is just carved up in three ways instead of two ways. And so because of that, you'll actually see the cost of energy in your bill, uh, what they call the volumetric, uh, go down under this new rate structure. Uh, there'll be three different options for residential customers to choose from that emphasize this demand component in different ways. And there'll also be some other options. If you don't want to deal with that, there'll be a flat set rate where you just pay the same amount every month and you're, you're locked in for a certain period of time. And about 100,000 customers, uh, APS customers, already volunteer voluntarily use this kind of demand charge, but traditionally it's for larger commercial operations that are managing uh, their power or energy usage, you know, around the clock. So why is APS saying they want to implement this new kind of charge? This demand charge, it's part of a growing trend among utilities. Uh, and you talk to APS, and their reason is basically they have to build the system, the grid, to meet those times, as I was discussing, in the evenings, especially in the summer when there's a lot of demand. And they need that that requires, you know, a huge amount of infrastructure, and they need to be able to meet, those, uh, meet that when it happens. And so what they say is that right now the bills don't really reflect uh, that capacity that they have to build up. They really only reflect these variable costs, how much energy uh, you use in a month. And so the demand charge reflects, you know, the cost they incur uh, by having to meet this high demand and um, really have a robust grid. And they say it sends a price signal to customers and that if customers are able to uh, change their usage and not have the demand during those peak hours be so great, that will help uh, customers ultimately see savings as well. But obviously, there are critics, there are concerns. What are they saying? Yeah, critics call these demand charges anti-consumer and just really unfair to the average customer. Uh, basically, they're going to force some lifestyle changes. You have to be aware of when, when you run your appliances, and you have to shift that usage to different times of the day. So you know, the biggest critique you'll hear is that you could be really careful all month, but then that one day you go home, you know, maybe the, the kid has the TV on, you turn on the dryer by accident, then you need to start the oven, and all of a sudden that messes up your bill for the whole month. And here's Court Rich. He's an energy attorney who represents man, many uh, major solar companies and works on, uh, represents them at the Corporation Commission. This is how he puts it. The idea that you have, quote, more control over your rates, end quote, with demand charges is absurd. What you have is more of an opportunity to have one moment of your entire month ruin your bill for the whole month. So that's one of the biggest arguments you hear against demand charges for all residential customers. And in fact, uh, it turns out UNS, which is a small utility here in Arizona uh, in just two counties, has a rate case that is going on. And there were hearings earlier this year, and they were as pretty much trying to do the same thing, uh, force residential customers, uh, all residential customers, onto demand charges. And uh, there were just hundreds of people turned out public comment against it, and it actually led them to withdraw that proposal. KJZZ's Will Stone with the latest on APS and its rate request. Will, thank you. Thanks, Steve. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. 
Donald Trump's success during the presidential campaign caught nearly everyone by surprise, and now that he's on the cusp of officially claiming the Republican nomination, speculation is rampant as to whether consistently GOP-leaning states like Arizona could now be in play. Has Trump alienated enough voters with comments about Mexican people, Senator John McCain, and a great percentage of those who disagree with him to cause Arizona to flip? Recently, Politico wrote about state GOP officials in Arizona and elsewhere who are concerned the Republican National Committee is not helping them enough. With me to talk about what it would take to make Arizona truly competitive in the fall are Jaime Molera of the Molera Alvarez Group and the TV program Politics in the Yard, and political analyst Chris Hurstam, former legislative leader, among other things. Guys, welcome. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Glad to be here. Jaime, let's start with the RNC. Um, How is the Republican National Committee handling things now in terms of working with a state like Arizona to make sure that people are comfortable, ready to really be ready in the fall, whether it's Donald Trump or somebody else? Well, I think regardless, you know, the the name of the game is money. And they're going all out to raise as much as they can, um, not only for the the presidency, but also to retain the the Senate and to some extent retain the House. Um, All of those things possibly are in play. It's an election season that I, I don't know any political pundit that has nailed it. Everybody's been wrong to date. So, but the key factor, regardless of, uh, of what people predict, the key factor is going to be money. And I think that's what the RNC is trying to do right now is get as much of a bank as possible. And briefly, how much more difficult does that make all of that, fundraising, et cetera, with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket? Well, I, I think it does. In, in, in some regard, it does create uh, some issues for them. But on the flip side, I'm not sure the DNC has as much uh, or has as easy as a task, too. I mean, there's a lot of uh, divisiveness going on there. I think the RNC's big uh, focus really is to trying to unify, unify the party. Mm-hmm. And right now, honestly, it's, that's been somewhat difficult uh, when you have McConnell, when you have uh, folks like Ryan that have not been comfortable to say, OK, we're going to embrace Trump. Um, I think that becomes uh, a little bit more difficult for them to raise the money and get the donors to say, OK, well, let's unify and let's get all the resources we need. Chris, what about that? Plus what Jaime said about the DNC. Too. Well, I, I think the Republican National Committee um, has not delivered on its promises at all because they are busy trying to get through a raucous primary season and now pull everything together. Um, their their goal is to provide field organizers, uh, field organizers in about 24 key states, and they've really failed to do so. Arizona is one of them, by the way. Um, Traditionally, presidential candidates set up their own field offices in key states and they they play off the primary system where they did that. Donald Trump is anything but traditional. He doesn't have a field operation, never has. You know, he's reality TV, um, a lot of free media publicity. He hasn't raised money, frankly, doesn't even put his own money into it, which everybody thought he was going to. Um, And so now the RNC, the states are turning to the RNC saying, where's our field operations? For instance, in Arizona, there's only one lousy RNC field person in the entire state. The Democrats now have 67 in Arizona, and they're going to gear up to 200, I'm told, by August. So the field operation for the Democrats in Arizona is going to be far superior to any national RNC work. But it's not just Arizona. For instance, in uh, in Ohio, um, RNC has promised 170 staffers by July. They only have 25 so far. So this is a real problem, and they do need to raise money. They were hoping the RNC to raise a billion, that's a B, a billion dollars. As of the end of last month, they'd only raised $16 million for field operations. So this is a big thing that I think will make Democrats more competitive in 2016. 
Now, the skeptic might say, and this may be a completely different wrong perspective on this, might say, well, Arizona has gone for Republicans almost every presidential election. So is there less of a need for field operations? Would the DNC, for example, need more field operations to to really get their people excited? I mean, is there, what do you think about that, first of all, Chris? Uh, yes, I think the Democrats have always been behind the eight ball in Arizona because of registration and turnout. Uh, and so field operations are more critical than ever, particularly when they're trying to galvanize the Latino vote, which is very anti-Trump, and single women, which are very anti-Trump in particular. Um, so getting out the vote is even more important. And it would appear if they're going to have 200 field operations throughout the state um, that they are doing just that. So, yeah, I'm going to go ahead. Well, but, but the difference in Arizona is that you have a very strong operation led by Robert Graham of the state Republican Party. Um, they, they re, the, the resurgence of the Arizona Republican Party under his leadership ha, has been uh, pretty significant. Um, but along with that, you also have John McCain, who's got a tremendous operation that he's built. So that's going to be uh, uh, the water that lifts the rest of the boats. I think the McCain operation is, is very impressive, and it's all over the state that a lot of Republicans are going to be able to utilize. Are some of those McCain folks, from what you know, disappointed, though, in the sense that I'm not saying McCain has rolled over for Trump, certainly wouldn't say that, but the idea of some of the things Trump has said about him, um, <laughs> he has not come back and said some things that maybe some of his supporters would want. So where, where does that put the mix in terms of, yes, McCain has this experienced operation, very successful over the years. Is he going to want to to share that necessarily when the, when it really gets running? Well, I, Senator Flake uh, recently talked to him, and 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 he said publicly that there is a concern out there. I think all the Republicans are 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 concerned about some of his rhetoric. That let's face it, it, it tends to galvanize a lot of Democrats when he talks about trade barriers, when he talks about uh, getting rid of NAFTA. A lot of Republicans, a lot of conservatives don't like those kinds of things. That's why you have Bill Kristol coming out and saying, "I might run against this guy." But McCain's a little bit different in that I think other than, than maybe some congressional candidates that are out there, McCain has 100 percent name ID. Mm. And I think folks are going to be able to, to, to judge McCain based on what John McCain, who he is and what he does. Honestly, quite frankly, once he gets past the primary in, in, in August, it'll be interesting to see how that rhetoric uh, might change. But I definitely think McCain's, McCain's problem is not going to be Donald Trump. McCain's problem is going to be making sure that the turnout comes out, making sure that the base comes out. And again, those are factors right now with, with Trump at the head of the ticket that's a little bit uh, concerning for them. You know, I'm, I'm a relatively new Democrat. I switched parties last August. From, you look younger. For, yes, thank you. From from you know, becoming, when I became a Democrat, I, I I did feel I do feel younger now. Um, but thank you. Um, but the point is, is I've always supported John McCain in his runs for um, uh, for office, whether it was Congress or or the U.S. Senate. But I'm really disappointed in him right now, and I'm giving Ann Kirkpatrick a really long look, um, and I've. Uh, Full disclosure here, monetarily, I've contributed to both campaigns. Um, McCain, you know, has this wonderful image of being a maverick, being his own person. But when he gets in these rough uh, Republican primaries in his state, um, that 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 blind loyalty to the party comes back into play, and I just think it's 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 pathetic. Uh, Donald Trump is the Republican Party now. He has won the nomination. He won Arizona by a large amount in the primary, uh, and 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 the Republican Party is going to have to own him now, and and individual. Republicans running for office are going to have to tell the world whether they endorse this guy or not. Uh, the bigotry, the
the nativism, the sexism, the egomaniac of Donald, of, 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 which is Donald Trump. Um, where do the Republican elected officials stand? And for, for John McCain uh, to say that he endorses the nominee, yes, he endorses uh, even if it's, if it's Trump, uh, I just think that's pathetic. I think that's blind loyalty. And my God, you mentioned Robert Graham earlier, the state party chairman. This is a guy who wrote uh, a national blog that was published where he compared just recently Donald Trump to Ronald Reagan, that this is the second coming of of Ronald Reagan. Give me a break. That type of embrace of this ridiculous candidate for President Donald Trump is what gives the Democrats a chance to pull some upsets in Arizona in 2016. That's political analyst Chris Hurstum. Also here is Jaime Molera. Coming up, we'll continue our discussion about whether Arizona is in fact in play in November. Then later this hour, who's ready for 115 degrees? More on that next on Here and Now. KJZZ is supported by The Persian Room, health-conscious Persian cuisine for lunch and dinner, plus catering for your special occasions and business events. The Persian Room on Scottsdale Road, one light north of Bell, 480-614-1414. This is Here and Now on KJZZ. Stay with us for BBC News Hour today at 1. Mostly clear conditions around the state at this hour. 95 degrees in Yuma. It's 90 in Tucson, 95 in Casa Grande, 72 degrees right now in Flagstaff. In Valley traffic, northbound on the Loop 101 freeway, the right lane is blocked by a collision at McDonald Drive. Join NPR's Corva Coleman and a small group of listeners for KJZZ's Nutritional Living Retreat at Canyon Ranch in Tucson. It's September 2nd to the 5th. There's more information at travelclub.com. KJZZ.org. Mostly sunny right now in Phoenix, 91 degrees at 1123. It's KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein along with Jaime Molera of the Molera Alvarez Group and the TV program Politics in the Yard and political analyst Chris Hurstum, former legislative leader among many other things. Jaime, let's talk a little bit about what Chris had to say, the uh, comparison that Robert Graham made uh, when it comes to Ronald Reagan versus Donald Trump. How much do you think the GOP at this point is embracing the idea that Donald Trump has had this popularity that no one expected? And even if he doesn't fit into the box the Republicans like, in fact, a lot of other people don't like either, sure. he could win. So they're supporting him. Well, the, the thing that does unify the Republicans, let's be honest, is Hillary Clinton. And, and thank God for Hillary Clinton if you're a Republican, because that's the one thing that is galvanizing Republicans. And if, if we had a different candidate at the top of the ticket, I guarantee you it would be different uh, as far as the unity and as far as the money. But it is what it is. Donald Trump won, uh, surprised a lot of people. Um, I think now um, the issue is going to be do we want to have a Hillary Clinton and possibly a United States Senate turn to the Democrats? And if you look at all of these things that President Obama has done around regulatory issues, it scares a lot of Republicans, especially with the Supreme Court nominees that are up there. I think that's the thing that brings Republicans together at the end of the day. I think that that's an interesting point, though, in the sense that, and I think this concerns a lot of people who are independents and who don't necessarily look at what the letter after the person's name is. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of listeners might say to themselves, well, why can't you, if you like a particular Republican congressman or a senator, like John McCain, why, not vote for, why, why should we care that Donald Trump's at the top of the ticket? I don't, I don't like him, but I do like these other representatives. Right. I, think we're so, I think people want to have more of that independent thought, maybe. Well, that's the interesting thing about this campaign. 
is that Donald Trump is starting to appeal to a lot of other people outside of the Republican framework. I mean, a lot of blue-collar Democrat union uh, uh, leaders are saying that this guy is somebody that, uh, that the Democrats want to have at the top of their ticket because he's talking about going to a trade war with China. He's talking about uh, getting rid of NAFTA. He's talking about all those things a lot of these folks in, in the Rust Belt want to hear. And a lot of Republicans traditionally have not said those kinds of things. And so that's why it's a different dynamic. But he's also saying, Chris, a lot of things that maybe he changes from day to day, which I think oh, yeah. probably concerns I mean, a lot of people, I Democrats mean, and Republicans. Uh, you yeah. know, the term that I hear used is pathological liar, um, that Donald Trump. I mean, he, 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 he's absurd. He's an egomaniac and he, you know, his bigoted sexist comments are horrific and he keeps making them and he stands with them and his attacks on the media and so forth. That all played well in a Republican primary, which is sad for the Republican Party that it played well. But the point is when you get to a general election population and once Bernie finally says enough, which he will have to at least in, in at the convention at the latest. Maybe, who knows? Uh, yeah, but, but when he finally says enough, you will see a bump for Hillary Clinton. You will see the party coalesce around Hillary Clinton just as easy as the party Republican Party's coalescing now around Trump. And, and you'll see her numbers go back up and she'll maintain a six, seven, eight point lead throughout the campaign. The question here in Arizona is, will candidates be able to ride her coattails and be successful? I think Ann Kirkpatrick has a chance for an upset riding on the Clinton coattails here in Arizona because I think Clinton can beat Trump in Arizona. And there's one other statewide race further down the ballot, the Corporation Commission. There's three open seats you just had a, a piece on uh, on rates and so forth at the Corporation Commission. There's three seats of the five that are open. You have two Democratic candidates, excellent candidates, I might add, Bill Mundell and Tom Chabon, uh, who have lots of experience in the political arena. And um, they're going to ride those coattails as well. So if there's a good field operation by the Democrats and a turnout, there's a chance that Mundell and Chabon could pull an upset and get into the Corporation Commission as well. I mean, one question about the coattails thing, because mm -hmm. the negatives, at least nationally, for both Trump and Hillary Clinton are very, very high. Right. Uh, it almost feels like many voters are going to be holding their nose regardless of which one they vote for. And Chris, I almost feel when I hear coattails, I almost feel like coattails is almost the wrong word for these two. Right. Uh, and I don't know what else you would think of them, because, yes, there are going to be people who are going to say, yes, because I prefer Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump by just this skosh, then maybe I'll vote for Anne Kirkpatrick. I don't know. Maybe... See, but, but that's the point with McCain. I think McCain is in a different category. Uh, when you have a it, Congressional District 1, for instance, um, you're going to have Tom O'Halloran that's going to be the Democrat candidate. And then you have likely either uh, a Dave Gowan or a Paul Babu. Uh, their name ID isn't as strong, even though people in the know know who they are. The, a lot of the voters don't. That's the level that I think it could have an impact, no doubt. I, well, John McCain is different because he has 100% name ID. And, and everybody knows who John McCain is. Everybody knows that he's been very, um, regardless of what he said about supporting the president, he's also been very critical of Donald Trump on multiple occasions. But, but if you look at the, the public policy polling that came out about a week ago, it makes the point that John McCain's approval rating within the Republican Party in Arizona is only 30 that's always percent. been the case. That's always been the case. Uh, so, so I, th I think he better be careful. I think you oh, know, if, if Kelly Ward had any money at all, it would be a race uh, in the in the primary. So, I, I just think it's it's a it's a crazy situation. But McCain's right always now. been that kind of a candidate, though. He's never run. Um, he's always run scared, which why I think that's why it's made him an effective candidate because he's a very aggressive yes, campaigner, yes. which you would agree with. Yes. We, we, no, and, and and I think McCain, 
for the reasons Jaime enunciated with regards to his name ID, uh, I think he is certainly the favorite. But I think if Hillary runs strong here, and it, when I said coattails, it's a matter of using her organization to get the Democrat and independent vote out. That is what an Ann Kirkpatrick will rely on. That is what a Bill Mundell, Tom Chabin for the Corporation Commission as Democratic candidates will rely on. Now, if Hillary washes her hands of Arizona, doesn't think she needs the state or she can't win, mm. then they lose that infrastructure that is so critical from a presidential campaign. I, I'm just have we have about a minute left, guys. Mm. I feel like I need to go back in history just because it, it, it intrigues me. The fact that Kelly Ward is considered pretty universally a weak candidate. She's not getting right. the national support. Again, totally hypothetical. It didn't happen. Right. What if Schweikert or Salmon had run, Jaime? Would, there, would that have been a close primary? Possibly. I, I just think that the structure, the infrastructure that John McCain has put together makes him very formidable. Um, it, it's something that I've been involved in, in, in these kinds of campaigns. I, I helped with Senator Kyle's campaign. I thought we were very impressed and very um, uh, enthused about the kind of campaign we ran, but the, nothing compares to what John McCain has been able to put together, both in dollars and structure. It's really formidable. Let, me just, let me just remind you of a quote from Republican conservative Congressman David Schweikert, who thought about running for the Senate and didn't. His quote about a year ago was, the next U.S. senator from Arizona is going to be Ann Kirkpatrick. Hmm. Not sure where hmm. he was quoting them from, but <laughs> he was in a bar somewhere. No, it was it was not. It was it was published in the in in, in the media. Um, so, I think the McCain seat is up for grabs in 2016. Okay, guys, thanks for being here. Chris Hurston, political analyst and former legislative leader, Jaime Malera of the Malera Alvarez Group, and the TV program Politics in the Yard. Guys, thanks as always. Thank, Thank you. This is KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. A lot of us in the Valley felt spoiled in May with high temperatures staying mostly in the upper 80s and lower 90s. And that was fun while it lasted. But the National Weather Service has issued an excessive heat warning for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Highs each of those days are expected to exceed 110 degrees. We may even get up to 115. So what's going on here and how did it sneak up on us like this? With me to talk about the weather is Randy Servany, professor of geographical sciences at ASU. He also directs the university's meteorology program. Randy, good morning. Hey, Steve. So what's going on to cause this dramatic temperature shift, especially, I think it seems somewhat shocking in that as recently as a couple of days ago, we were below normal. Now we're going to move to about 15 degrees above. Right. Um, what's happening is what what we have is the jet stream changing again so that we're building up over the western United States what's called a ridge, basically a giant air mountain. And the air from that air mountain just kind of sinks, and as it does, it really, really warms. So it's a typical thing that we have in summer. But building one this fast is, uh, is a little unexpected. Yeah, so I guess were we, were we spoiled, Randy, do you think, when it came to getting used to 89 to 93 degrees for a high? Was that, was that unseasonably odd? Uh, that was unseasonably cold, actually, for uh, for us. We usually have only a uh, we have about seven or eight days uh, in May that are above a hundred. We only had uh, I think three this year. So yes, we were spoiled. But uh, I have a feeling that uh, June's going to come in with a vengeance now. So was El Nino a failure, Randy? There were big expectations for that, and is that 
a situation where we look at it from year to year? Could El Nino still be building? Could this this next fall and next winter give us the the precipitation that we're hoping for? Uh, no, actually, El Nino has is starting to really fall apart. So uh, there were parts of the country, parts of the world that were hit really hard by the effects of El Nino. We just happened to be one of the states that wasn't. Uh, California got some rain. Texas got a lot of rain over the winter that was associated with El Nino. But for us, it was kind of like uh, somebody painted out a bullseye and had all the storms moving around it. So we were we were the big losers. But there there were some winners uh, in El Nino this year. Were, were some of those uh, winners folks that also share the Colorado River water with us? Could that help them? <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually, uh, uh, to some slight extent, uh, California had a little bit of relief. The, most of the storms that they had this winter uh, in California were in the northern part of the state, which is where they needed to, to happen for their reservoirs. They didn't get near the rain that they would have liked to have, but it definitely helped some. And uh, uh, they're in a better situation than they would have had those storms not occurred at all. So, Randy, what happens? I know that, obviously, we have this hope when forecasters were, were looking at El Nino that it would make a perhaps a, at least a small dent in the long-term drought that we've had. There are so many things to, I guess, attribute the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of El Nino. Does this, in any way, should this give us less faith in uh, in the patterns that were put together, in in what forecasters were looking at, or are things just really difficult to forecast when it comes to this? Well, this was an unusual El Nino event. Uh, so I think part of our problem is any kind of forecasting is difficult. I mean, back uh, three, 400 years ago, if you tried to make a forecast, you might have been burned at the stake. So forecasting is an inherently dangerous profession, but we're getting better at it. The thing of it is we don't realize, we don't understand all of the elements of weather and how they work together yet. So we're still learning and definitely this winter has been a learning experience for us. I think our forecast will get sharpened now as we look at why we weren't so accurate for this winter forecast. But uh, forecasting is, is always a difficult profession. Now, Randy, you're a scientist, but I feel like it seems like the average person who at least was paying attention to the forecast of El Nino may actually be alarmed by the fact that it didn't produce as much precipitation as we'd hoped for. Because you're looking at it with a different eye. Um, I mean, does it alarm you, though, even as a resident thinking, boy, I was really hoping for this, and now maybe we're in for an even more extended drought than we've already had? Oh, yeah. No, I, I was quite concerned the fact that we didn't here in Arizona get the rain that we were hoping for. Uh, we live in a metropolitan area that uses a whole lot more water than what we should than what we get from the sky. I mean, if, if every resident here, um, the amount of water that every resident uses here in the Phoenix metropolitan area would be the equivalent of having uh, about 36 inches of rain falling here on the metropolitan area every year. Well, we don't get that. We get about eight to nine inches of rain. So all the water that we have has to come from somewhere else, basically the Colorado River and from the Muggion Rim and the flood diversion uh, dams that we have from SRP uh, and from groundwater. Um, and that's a difficult thing because a lot of those sources take a lot of time to recharge. So if you use a lot of the water from them, it takes much longer for the water to be recharged back up to its quote, quote, normal level. So, uh, yeah, I was very concerned. And uh, unfortunately, the situation is not good for the southwestern United States right now. Yeah, we've heard about uh, Lake Mead and how low that is. How closely do you follow that? That's, uh, that's definitely a problem. Of course, the problem with Lake Mead is 
not only the drought, but the usage. Uh, Lake Mead is a controlled lake. I mean, if you wanted to fill it up, you could. You just simply would have to shut off California getting any kind of water from it. But that's unrealistic. <laughs> so uh, the idea here is that we have a combination of problems. We have a big drought that's been going on for decades here in the southwest, but we also have a lot more people now than we've ever had in the southwest. And those two things combine to create a potential problem. So are we going to need out-of-the-ordinary weather patterns to eventually get us out of this drought? Or if we just somehow return to normal for a few years in a row, could that make a dent? (laughs) It's going to take more than just a few years. Uh, We've been in this drought here in Arizona for roughly uh, almost uh, 20 years now. And it's going to take another 20 years of water to basically recharge the system up to something that we were Uh, those of us that have been in the valley for a long time, you might have remembered the early 90s as being a really wet period. Well, it's going to take a lot of work to get back up to those kind of levels. We've been dry for a very, very long time. Randy, let's look at factors for the rest of this year. Uh, People I'm sure hoping for when the monsoon arrives some point in this summer, we're hoping for some wetness then. Have you looked ahead for what you're looking for for the summer or the rest of this year in terms of at least the hope for precipitation here? Well, uh, the the big problem, of course, is that the summer precipitation doesn't help us as much as the wintertime does. What we like is the the slow, steady type of rains that we get associated with the wintertime events. Uh, The summertime, we have the intense thunderstorms and the water runs off too quickly. So, unfortunately, uh, for the most part, the waters that we get, the rains that we get in the summer, aren't as helpful. With that said, we're predicting right now a fairly normal monsoon season. We're not seeing anything that indicates it's going to be superbly above normal, but we're also not seeing indications that it's going to necessarily be a weaker than normal monsoon. Uh, For the winter, unfortunately, it's looking drier. As we get out of that warm Pacific, that El Nino pattern, the typical shift that occurs is for drier weather for us. So uh, right now, the long-term forecast for us for the wintertime is below normal precipitation. And Randy, finally, as we were talking about, we're looking at somewhere between 110 and 115 over this weekend. How are you going to spend it? Are you going to be inside? (laughs) Uh, I'm going to try to stay as close to an air conditioner as possible. The big thing uh, that I really stress, particularly to people that are new to the Valley, keep a bottle of water uh, by you. I I have one right here. A A lot of times you don't think in terms of the heat that you're also having so much so much sweating going on. And so the more water that you drink, the more that you keep your hydrated, yourself hydrated, the better off you're going to be. Randy Servany is professor of geographical sciences at ASU. He also directs the university's meteorology program. Randy, thanks and stay cool. <laughs> My pleasure. And still to come on here and now, we'll hear and talk about some of the music of South Park. We'll, we'll bleep some of the parts. Don't worry about it. Here and now, stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Copper Point Insurance Companies, providing workers' compensation insurance to more than 13,000 Arizona businesses for over 90 years. CopperPoint.com. Get to the point. Good morning. This is KJZZ's Here and Now on 91.5 and KJZZ.org. In Valley traffic on the Loop 101 northbound, all lanes are now back open at McDonald Drive. Plenty of sunshine today for the valley, high of 103 degrees, and as you just heard, things are going to continue to get warm as the week progresses, 107 for tomorrow, and a possible 113 
by Friday. NPR's Here Now is coming up at 12. We'll hear about the Trump University documents unsealed yesterday and what they may reveal. Also, the death rate in the U.S. is up for the first time in 10 years, driven in part by more people dying from drug overdoses. Here and Now from Boston starts in less than 20 minutes at noon on KJZZ. Sunny skies right now with 14% humidity. It's 91 degrees in Phoenix at 1141. You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. If the only music you know from South Park creators Trey Parker and Matt Stone is from their Broadway hit, The Book of Mormon, then you may be surprised there's a new production in the Valley entirely devoted to some of their other tunes. The show is called Equal Opportunity Offenders, music from South Park. It's being produced by Theater Artist Studio at their location near 48th Street and Cactus. And to talk about the production, I'm joined by Tony and Mary Robinson. Welcome to you both. Thanks for being here. Thank Hello. you. So, Hello. Tony, I'm going to start with you, I guess. How did this get started, this idea that South Park music, let's make a production out of that? Actually, their music is brilliant. Um, and uh, Mary and I were sitting around watching the show. And one day I said, if we do another show, we should do the music of South Park. And we laughed as if it wasn't something that we could actually be done. And over the course of about a year, we actually put a show together. And uh, Theater Artist Studios was a, a good place to host it. Mary, I, you know, we hear this. And yet the South Park music, I think people would say, is catchy. But it also has some, you know, challenges when it comes to maybe themes or lyrics and that sort of thing. Uh, what, what did you think about that initially? Well, I taught public school for a long time. And when I first started watching South Park, I couldn't do it. I couldn't accept these little kids saying these words. And through the years, I realized that it, it's just language and there's a lot deeper themes. So when we started writing the show, we looked at the language and said, you know, it's part of what they do, so we're not going to cut it. And we advertise that it's for mature audiences only, and we have it right in the title, we're going to offend you, and a lot of people really like it. They they think it's fun to be offended in a way, and um, they go out laughing. Well, Tony, let's think about, I'll go away from the lyrics and think more about just the music itself. What makes this brilliant songwriting? What makes it feel like what a person might hear in, in a more traditional musical? It has a lot to do with the depth of what they do, but the accessibility of the songs themselves. Mm -hmm. The songs are actually very singable. They're very, uh, they roll off the tongue. But when you get into the uh, actual arrangements of the songs, you realize that they put little twists on what might be classic music theory themes. And that was actually a difficult part in terms of arranging the show because it didn't feel like it was going to be that com complex and that difficult, but it became complex and difficult to actually put it all together. Um, when it comes to doing theater like this, um, presumably you had to get some sort of permission, I imagine? Well, our theater has a blanket agreement with BMI and ASCAP, okay. so that covers all of the songs. And the rest of it, are there are words. We wrote the script for it, so it's our words telling about Trey and Matt, telling about um, kind of our perception of what they're trying to tell. Has it been as much fun as you expected it to be? Oh, yes. Even more. Even more after, you know, a year of putting this together, you know, I would write, he would edit, I would write, he would edit, he would write, I would edit, and we went back and forth. You know, I think we're on script 10 right now. <laughs> um, it, 
opening night when it finished, I was so ecstatic because I thought, wow, we we actually did it. And people liked it, and people came back the next day. So we're very happy with it and very pleased that we're getting a good response. Any that you really enjoy more than any others, Tony? They're really showstoppers? Well, they're, of course, the songs from the Book of Mormon are... Um, are very accessible and very well received. But what was interesting to me was to see some of the sing-songy songs from the show itself that people reacted to that they never knew anything about. Even people who knew South Park, they may have seen the show and they may have that song may have passed them by. But to see it in this context with the script that we've written to kind of put some description about how those types of songs and where they may have come from philosophically um, is very interesting. So there's some songs about the characters butters, uh, the character butters in the show that um, might seem very, very tame when you hear them, but, but the audiences have really, really reacted well to them. And of course, Kyle's mom. Yes. I won't finish the title of that. <laughs> <laughs> so you're talking about scripting things, but when you have as many songs, it's nearly 30 songs are in this, right? Yes. So how did you decide what order? Did they, did they fit well together in terms of a theme? Did they fit together in terms of what they sounded like? We decided the order in the last week and a half, as a matter <laughs> of fact, because of our scripting process. It was very, very, that was our most worrisome aspect in terms of developing this is the songs are so contextual into, because Matt and Trey write in a context of the show that they are producing and they're creating. And outside that context, we were very fearful that the songs would not have meaning. So we were able to develop a script that now we've realized, because of the response from the audience, we've realized that that script has actually been able to tie them together pretty well. But that didn't come together really until about a week and a half before we actually went on. (laughs) Our our uh, cast, I have to say thank you to our cast for sticking with us and not freaking out when we said, oh, sorry, we're moving your song again. They just rolled with it, and they're amazing. Well, I think about the humor that comes across from the show. I mean, if it's if it's the kind of humor you like, it's a funny show. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of that humor is retained in your show, and how much of that comes with the performers? I mean, do they mm-hmm. are is is there a desire to have them in some ways play it straight, or is there a, di- a desire to say, well, let's let's make this as funny as we possibly can based on how they're performing it? Playing it straight, yes, because. We specifically told them, do not portray the characters from the show, because that just can't be done. So a lot of the songs are played very straight to just show the mastery of the music, that it is quite a beautiful song, even though if you might have seen it in the South Park episode or on stage or in the movie, it might have had quite a different meaning but we really wanted to show the mastery of their music that they do have very beautiful songs that aren't offensive and are just great songs. So it sounds like you really admire these two. And uh, have you seen the Book of Mormon? I presume you have. Oh, we yes. have. Oh, yeah. yeah. We, we were have. fortunate enough to see it on Broadway. First year, fifth row, we were there. Okay. And, and it hit you. Were you sort of aiming for the same sort of thing in putting your show together? In terms of, I mean, I know it's, it's different, but in terms of how you wanted people to feel when they left the theater. I think that's a good analogy um, in that, that um, the only difference I would say is that we've really tried to do an homage, if you will, to Trey and Matt 
um, where that wasn't part of the context of the Book of Mormon. Um, um, part of our scripting process was about talking about them, how they came about gaining their fame, and uh, and where that has led them in their lives. So that's the slight difference between the two of them. But yes, in terms of, of uh, the offensive nature of the content, but understanding that there's a deeper story behind that offensive content. The two of you are obviously very passionate about theater and have been involved in it for a long time. But I, I, so I wonder when, does this illustrate to you, based on what you've done with this and based on the Book of Mormon and, and, and whatnot, does this say to you that theater can really be so many different things? Because I think for a long time people would sort of put musical theater in a box in a sense. And it seems like with your production of Equal Opportunity Offenders or Book of Mormon, it sounds like people are really trying to break through that wall. Yes. Um, our studio does quite an array of types of shows. We were fortunate that we got to do this one at the studio. We do very heavy dramas. We do brand new shows from Broadway. Um, and we have such a varied audience that we really need to look at them and say, you know, what is our varied audience going to like? And where can we reach out to new people to come? Theater is always to be reaching out to new people, new audiences, new arenas to gather them in because theater is so universal. It really hits everyone differently. And Tony, briefly, how important is it to take risks? And did you consider this a risk when you guys put it together? We absolutely did. And, <laughs> and as a matter of fact, um, we are thrilled that the board members at Theater Artist Studio, who we did have concerns about, um, have come back to us and told us how much that they really appreciate how the show has gone, how some members have come and said, we didn't know anything about South Park in the least before we saw this show, and now we're interested in going and watching the show to dig deeper into where this may have come from. Tony and Mary Robinson are the creators behind the show Equal Opportunity Offenders, music from South Park. It's being produced by Theater Artist Studio at the location near 48th Street and Cactus. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Steve. are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. Career shifts are often dramatic, but how about moving from designing science centers and focusing on education to becoming a novelist? Both involve creativity, but the similarities might seem to end there. Phoenix resident Sheila Grinnell is the former head of the Arizona Science Center. She was also a leader of the New York Hall of Science and the Exploratorium in San Francisco. Her previous books include A Place for Learning Science. Her new novel is called Appetite, and she joins me now. Sheila, welcome. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. So putting together a novel for a lot of people involves uh, a lot of frustration, a lot of trial and error. What made you initially want to do this, and then what made the final product actually come about? You actually stuck with it and actually have a book. Right. I didn't know I wanted to do it, 
But I did know that um, I was done making science centers. 40 years is a long time. And it was fabulous. I loved it. I I, uh, got completely involved in it for a long time. But, you know, enough's enough. And I knew I needed a change, but I didn't know what to. And then there was a catalyst. It's always a catalyst. I'm a scientist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My mother had a stroke, and she was living back east, east with my sister. So I would fly back to see what was going on. And uh, she gradually lost her words and her sense of herself. I remember going back, it was April, and I said to her, Mom, would you like me to tell you your life story? I don't think you know. And she said, yes, I'd like that. So I told her her life story. It took about 45 minutes. I cleaned it up, and I finished, and I said, did you enjoy that? She said, yes. I said, well, you won't remember, but I'll tell you again. So then May, my May trip, I said, would you like me to tell your story? And she said, yes. But she couldn't pay attention for 45 minutes. So I divided it into little chunks. And that was cool. So we're getting to June now, and she couldn't string the chunks together. And it was like somebody stabbed me with a knife in my belly. I said, I have to write her story. So I did. And I found help. I found somebody at ASU who'd give me some editing on it. And then I sent it to a couple of friends of mine who had parents who were in those similar circumstances. And that was fine. But what I discovered was that I wanted to write more. And I wound up, uh, fast forward about a year after my mother's death, I found, wound up at one of the Maricopa Community Colleges, Phoenix College, taking writing classes. And they were wonderful. And the college, it was so different to be in community college than to be running a science center or developing a science center or raising money to run a science center. Um, so I, I, I loved the atmosphere, and I took more classes. And I, mean, I was in my third short story class, and I'm looking at the story in front of me, and I say, it's too big. It won't fit in 20 pages. And the guy sitting next to me said, so write a novel. And I went, okay. So I began to write Appetite in 2009. I'm still working. I, was, um, I had left the Science Center, but I was consulting. And by 2013, I thought I had finished my first draft. And I went to a development editor who was also um, from Phoenix College. And I said, is this a book or not? Is it just a bunch of scenes? And she said, well, it's a book, but you've made a mistake. <laughs> I wrote the history, the backstory chapters in the same voice as the main chapters. Right. But she said, no, no, no. Backstory is different. You need more distance. You need more uh, expansiveness. You need more history. Rewrite them. So I rewrote eight chapters. They turned into six. Mm. And then I thought I really was done. And I gave the book, the manuscript, to beta readers. Those are people who have an expertise who can look at it for you. So there's a scientist in the book. I gave it to a scientist. And there's an East Indian guru. I gave it to my acupuncturist. She knows a lot about East Indian philosophy. And And there's two generations. I gave it to a friend who's, you know, has children at the mm-hmm. appropriate distance apart. And uh, then I gave it to the husband of one of my writing partners because I needed a man's point of view. And um, after they all, they commented, I put yeah. it all together again. And then I went out looking for an agent, then I went out looking for a publisher, and then here we are. So a six-year process about... Six-year process. I am writing number two. And number two is going much faster. <laughs> Don't want to wait another six years. It, it's not going to take another six years because now I know what I'm doing. Um, 
when you there's no shortcut to writing. You've mm-hmm. just got to write, and you've just got to make mistakes, and you've just got to keep doing it. And you have to really want to keep doing it because it takes a lot of work. Now, because I know you as someone who ran the Science Center, I mean, that's where we crossed paths years ago. Um, what are, are there certain qualities? Are you someone who is somehow able to use both sides of your brain in, in ways that others aren't? Because if you have an expertise in science, one would think, well, writing the novel, it should be a struggle. And in fact, are you even going to get through it? So you're able to do both of those things. Did any of your experience with the science part of your brain help push this book forward? Absolutely. Science is a creative act when you're really doing it. I remember in college, I went to college, I thought I was going to be a math major because I loved math. But um, they put me in a fancy physics class, and I didn't really like electricity and magnetism. And I thought, well, you know, there go my plans. I don't know what I'm doing. I have to go home. And somebody said to me, well, what do you like? I said, well, I like my English composition class. And they said, well, major in English. So I did. And it was senior year. I'm walking across the campus, and I have this epiphany that what I liked about math and what I liked about poetry were the same thing. Each was a universe, and it had operations, and you could learn them, and you could move, manipulate within them, and if you were really, really good, you could jump out of the box. And I realized it was about learning, it was about structure, it was about creativity, and wasn't I lucky that I had thought about both? It's here and now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, talking with Sheila Grinnell. Her new novel is called Appetite, but... We know more about Sheila from her past as the person who ran the Arizona Science Center. And to that, and Sheila, we just have a couple minutes left. I want to get into that a little bit because mm-hmm. how important do you think it is with, with the science centers you help design and run? What sort of position, what sort of key is that in getting young people and, and, and older people alike more interested in science? Do we need to have these hands-on exhibits? Do we need people to see things in action? How much does that make it come alive for people so that they're not quite as intimidated by science? We need it. We need all the time. We need as many as we have. We need as many TV shows, radio shows. We need everybody to talk about science. It's so important to be able to understand what's true and what's not true. If you look at graphs in the newspaper or online and you see this looks like a huge difference, but they haven't given you the baseline. So you don't know, really know, am I looking at a big difference or not? I mean, if you say the Dow Jones drops to 100 points, it makes it if it's at 17,000, that's different than if it's at 7,000. And it was 7,000 when I first came to Phoenix 23 years ago. So we need it. And it's, do people have different ways of interacting with the world. And different, you don't know what's going to turn somebody on, whether they want a word, whether they want an explanation, whether they want to touch things, whether they want to be convinced that the real world really responds to them in some way. So, yes, we have to keep, we have to keep getting people interested in science. But briefly, I want to ask you about this, because one exhibit that I experienced with you a number of years ago was grossology. There's also a current one now about giant bugs and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And to some people, that might feel like, well, you're making light of it. It's silly. It's whatnot. But do you think that, in fact, leads people to studying science in a more serious way? Of course it does, because you never know what's going to capture somebody's, especially young person's mind. Um, I remember my son being little and going to an exhibit where um, you use a magnet to pull on a TV screen. Now, that doesn't happen anymore because we have different kinds of TV screens. But you pull apart the three different colors. And later on, when he was here, I think it was at Cocopa, and he, middle school, and he was learning about an octopus which can change the color of its skin. And it also has red, green, and blue pixels in its skin. And he said, well, I remember from the TV, but I don't know how the octopus turns them on. He could take the octopus into biology classes and into environmentalism. You could take it anywhere. 
And it was that experience that got him started. Sheila Grinnell is the author of the new novel, Appetite. She's also well known for running the Arizona Science Center. Sheila, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks very much to you for listening. Thanks to senior producer Sarah Ventry and Bruce Drummond for their help on today's program. NPR's Here and Now is up next on member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day. It's 12 o'clock.